Amen. You may be seated. I know we have, we're a smaller group today. I know uh, several families that texted me throughout the week letting me know that they would be traveling this weekend. I was gone last Sunday. Uh, we had uh, Dr. Sayer speaking last Sunday, which I'm now noticing that as a taller man, he raised the stand a little bit higher, but I'll, uh, I'll manage. Um, last week, I was over at a, uh, another local church uh, up in Tinkanic, just being able to spend time with them. The pastor from there, um, Pastor Mike Conroy, uh, he and I meet on a weekly basis every Thursday morning to just pray. Uh, we talk a little bit about our messages, but really just spending time praying, asking God to use um, us in preaching his word, that uh, his spirit would be heard, that it would not be our own words in the pulpit, but truly the word of God. Um, the previous week before that, we also had that celebration service, that memorial service. Um, I promise you we will not go as long this week as we did that week because we ended up going three and a half hours that was a special service, but today we won't be doing that. But go ahead and open up your Bible to the book of John. We're going to be continuing to go through the book of John. Um, if you got a handout when you walked in, the passage is on the back of the sheet there. Now, as we've been going through the book, and like I said, it's been two weeks since we've gone through it, but the first message that we looked at, we really wanted to see what is the theme of the gospel of John. And when we were looking at what the theme was, we went to the very end, John chapter 20, in verses 30 and 31, and John tells us, very fortunately, he tells us, this is why I'm writing. He says there, these are written, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These things are written. Well, what are these things? These things are a witness that there are things, there are things that John is giving us as proof to who Jesus is. He wants us to know Jesus. But then there's a response to that. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And the result of that is that you will have life in his name. Not just eternal life, but a transformed life even now. So that's why John is writing. He wants us to know who Christ is. To believe in Jesus. Both the witness and the belief. So then we went into the first chapter. Well, what, what has been the goal of the first chapter? We're going to be finishing chapter 1 this morning. Well, the goal that we've seen so far is that in the first chapter, the author John seeks to reveal Christ as well as demonstrate the first responses to Christ. In those first 18 verses, his goal is just to reveal Christ. When we looked at that, we saw the preeminent word. The word who was in the beginning. The word who was with God. The word who was God. But then we also saw in verse 14, the word took on flesh and dwelt among men. In those first 18 verses, we saw that God reveals his glory and grace through the word who took on flesh and dwelt in darkness. If God did not move first, if God did not come to us, if God did not reveal himself, then we would have no hope. 
but God does reveal himself. Then in the next part of the passage, what we saw was the testimony of John the Baptist. We're going to see the first response to that revelation. And in John, first what we saw was John's mission. John had the goal, John had the mission from God to make people ready. To have Israel ready to receive the revelation of Christ. But John was also an example of one being ready. Because in that passage, we saw the difference between John and the Jews. The Jews are coming and asking questions, but they're demonstrating that they were not ready to receive their king. But John was ready. John was ready, and he proclaims Christ. He looks, and he, sa- and he bears witness. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, if someone were reading the Gospel of John, and they look at the contrast between John the Baptist and the Jews, we might say, well, that's not really a fair comparison. Like, yeah, of course John the Baptist was ready, but, but you can't really expect that of the Jews. I mean, John the Baptist, Jesus says about John that among women there is no one greater. We know in Luke that John in the womb leapt when he heard Mary's voice. It's not really fair to compare John to the Jews. And there's an actual valid point to that. Because John was someone special. But this is why I love the author, John, is because immediately after showing John the Baptist's testimony, someone who had that revelation from Christ, who had seen, he goes into the other disciples. And he shows that they too were ready. That being ready, you don't need to be like John. You don't need to be the greatest among women. Born from women. John wasn't the greatest among women. But in this passage that we're going to see now, we're going to look at what was the difference. What allowed these first disciples to respond rightly? What allowed them to come to Christ? The difference that we are going to see is that they saw Jesus for who he was. That the God who sees all granted sight to those who came and saw. Now this is one of the themes that's throughout the entire book of John. John is going to keep doing this motif, this theme of those who can and cannot see. The of light and darkness. And if you have your Bible, just quickly turn to John chapter 9. John 9. One of the things that we see is these groups of people, and one of the groups is the Pharisees, the Jews who are refusing to receive Christ. This is what John, he says, uh, in, starting in verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you 
were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Throughout the entire book of John, um, he's going to show us some who are looking for Jesus. They come to Jesus so that they can truly see him. They come with no claims and are ready to receive his revelation, and God grants them sight. On the other hand, there are many who come to Jesus, not so they, they can see him, but so that they can tell Jesus who they see. They come to Jesus and say, this is who you are. They claim to see and therefore remain blind. This morning, we're going to focus on that first group, that group that comes to Jesus and wants to see, and God reveals himself to them. Our big idea this morning is this. The God who sees grants sight to those who come and see him. The God who sees grants sight to those who come and see him. As we go through our text this morning, I just want you to, to maybe underline in your handout, maybe in your Bible, just look at all of the different seeing words. We're going to see a lot of those as we progress. Let's look at verse 35 in John chapter 1. Verse 35. This is right after the testimony of John. The next day... Again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Now, this is still a continuation of John's testimony, and look what it says. John looked at Jesus. He sees Jesus. John knows who Jesus is, and then John makes this proclamation. He says, behold the Lamb of God. Now, even that behold word is a seeing word. Some Bibles even translate it, look, the Lamb of God. John has seen Jesus, and immediately he wants to show Jesus to others. His disciples are there, and he says, look, there's the Lamb of God. Now, in our passage, as we go all the way through the rest of chapter 1, we're going to see four different proclamations regarding Jesus. Four different times, disciples are going to say something about who Jesus is. This is the first one. John calls him the Lamb of God. Now, what does that mean? If, if you go up and, and just call someone a lamb, you know, that, that's a little weird. But we need to remember that John, this is not the first part of God's story of redemption. This is coming after the entire Old Testament. Now, if you think into the Old Testament, what were the lambs used for in the Old Testament? Sacrifice. At various times and for different reasons, God told the nation of Israel to perform sacrifices. We can think of the Passover lamb. That it was in the place of their own punishment that the lamb received the punishment. The question is, why did God call for sacrifices? Again, we need to go even further back in the Bible. We go all the way to the very beginning. What happened right at the beginning, shortly after creation, that would require sacrifices? The fall. Humanity rebelled against God. We sinned against God. 
But humanity had been warned. We had been told, when you sin, you will die. You will be separated from your holy God. You rebelled against him. You are deserving of God's wrath. But at the same time that God tells them their punishment, he also gives them a promise. There's something coming that's better. So these sacrifices then are used as a reminder of two things. It is not only a reminder of our sin, of the punishment of sin that is death, it is also a reminder that there is something coming that's better. If you have your Bible, quickly go to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 does such a fantastic job of explaining what these sacrifices meant. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 1, says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The sacrifices are a shadow of the good things to come. The sacrifices were meant to point to something greater. Why did they point to something greater? Because they weren't enough. They couldn't do it. Now that's not because the sacrifices were broken. The sacrifices were never meant to take away sins. The sacrifices were never meant to make perfect those who sacrificed. They were meant to point forward to something greater, to something better. But what the sacrifices could do was serve as a reminder. Looking at verse 3 of Hebrews 10, But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They couldn't do that. So now here's the question. When John is talking about, Behold the Lamb of God, is he talking about a sacrifice like this? A sacrifice that really can't do anything, but it, it serves as a reminder. No. He's not talking about the shadow of the good things. He's talking about the substance of the good things. He's saying, this is the one who was promised. This is the one who can do what the sacrifices couldn't do. Now we know that that's the case because of what Hebrews 10 verse 11 says. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It said the sacrifices could never make those perfect, but Christ could. John is saying, behold, look, here is the true Lamb of God. Here is the one who can actually take away sins. Here is the fulfillment of the promise. Here is the true and better sacrificial Lamb. John looks and sees the true Jesus, and his desire is for others to see him too. Behold, look, the Lamb of God. John was granted sight from God. John was granted sight from the God who sees, and now John proclaims him. So now let's look and see how John's disciples respond to that proclamation. 
Look at uh, John 1, verse 37. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them, following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. The disciples, immediately after hearing John, when John says, Behold the Lamb, those two disciples immediately start following Jesus. Now, here's just a quick aside. If God has called you to a position of leadership, if God has called you to teach the Word of God, to disciple others, you can have—it's hard to find a better model than John. Look at the, the result that John has. John says, there's someone better, and immediately his disciples abandon him. Now, we could think that, oh, man, that's a little weird. No, that's the best thing. When we are called to be under shepherds, when we are called to disciple, the best thing is when we say there is the truth person to follow is that they immediately follow. That's an example to aspire to, that we point to something greater, and when our disciples see something greater, they immediately follow that. But look at these two disciples. They are literally following Jesus, and look what happens. Jesus turns, and he sees them. Another one of our words, seeing words. Jesus is the God who sees. He turns and sees them, and he asks them this important question. What are you seeking? What are you looking for? That's such an important question. When people are coming, when they are being exposed to God, what are you truly looking for? Now, these two disciples don't really answer the question. And maybe they, maybe they are just shy. You know, they just met Jesus. Maybe they, they don't know the, the entire answer, but Jesus knows. Jesus knows what they're seeking. Jesus knows what they truly need. But their answer is actually just another question. What they say is, Rabbi, teacher, where are you staying? And look what Jesus says. He offers an invitation. Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. So, so what's going on here? After hearing John proclaim that this is the Lamb of God, and after abandoning their beloved teacher to follow Jesus, are they really only interested in seeing where he sleeps? Like, is that what they're, they're like, man, John just said this really great thing about Jesus, and the thing we most want to know is, is where does, where's Jesus staying? Where, where's he sleeping? That's not what's happening, and, and Jesus knows that's not what's happening. Jesus understands that what they are really looking for he is the God who sees, and he gives them a promise. Come, and you will see. Come, and you will see me. Come to the God who sees, and I will grant you sight. Now, we know that that's what Jesus really meant because of what happens next. Looking at verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. 
The first thing Andrew does after leaving Jesus is to go find his brother and say the greatest thing a Jew could ever say. We have found the Messiah. We have found the Christ. Now, do you think Andrew came to that realization because Jesus promised to show him where he slept? No. He came to that realization because he saw Jesus. That Jesus demonstrated, he showed himself. Jesus revealed who he truly was. Now, Andrew makes the second of our four proclamations regarding Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. The word Messiah or Christ means anointed. Now, there are many, if you read the Old Testament, there are many different anointed people in the Old Testament. That's not, say, that's not what Jesus is. It, Jesus isn't a Christ. Jesus isn't an anointed person. He is the anointed person. We know that Christ's ministry is as prophet, priest, and king. All three of those roles, when we look in the Old Testament, are roles in which someone was anointed in that. A prophet was anointed with the Holy Spirit. Jesus has already seen that in the baptism that he's talked about. Jesus is the priest. He's the king. What Andrew is saying is that he, the Messiah, the fulfillment, he's here. The God who sees granted sight to Andrew. Now imagine Andrew's excitement. The first thing he wants to do is tell others. Now this is actually a pattern we're going to see in our passage. What did John the Baptist do after he had seen Jesus? He proclaimed him. What does Andrew do after he sees Jesus? He runs and finds his brother and he proclaims Jesus. In the next paragraph, we're going to see Philip. Philip does the same thing. He encounters Jesus, and then he goes and finds another and proclaims Jesus. Here's a principle that I want us all to know. True disciples seek to know Jesus and make him known. True disciples seek to know Jesus and make him known. As disciples of Jesus, we should be daily striving to know Jesus more, to see him better. Think about it. John the Baptist has already revealed something about Jesus. He's already told them, behold the Lamb of God. And yet Andrew wants to know him more. He starts following Jesus. John, uh, Paul in the book of Colossians says that his goal is for us to grow in our understanding, in the wisdom of the mystery which is Christ in you. We're supposed to grow in that. Knowing who Jesus is isn't just a matter of salvation. It's also a matter of sanctification. We know who Jesus is in order to be saved, but we continue to grow in our knowledge of Jesus in order to be sanctified. That's why we can still go through the Gospel of John. It's not just a book of evangelism. It's also a book of sanctification. It allows us to know Jesus better. At the same time, we also have a duty to make him known. We must be like John. We must be like Andrew. We must be like Philip. We must proclaim Christ. We must show people this is Jesus. We were blind, but now we see. Knowing Jesus isn't just about salvation. It's also commission. Yes, we're saved, but God has now given us a mission. Proclaim him. 
Andrew proclaimed Jesus. He found his brother and said, we have found the Messiah. But Andrew doesn't stop there. While proclamation is vital, he's, it's not just information that we need. We need that encounter with Jesus. We need to truly know him. Look what Andrew does. He proclaims Christ, and then look at verse 42. He brought him to Jesus. What I love about Andrew in the Gospel of John, there's three, different to- uh, there's three total times where Andrew is talked about in the Gospel of John, and every single time, Andrew is bringing someone to Jesus. Andrew loves bringing people to Jesus, and that's what he does now with Peter. He brings him to Jesus, and the God who sees looks at Peter and sees him. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Jesus is the God who sees. He looks at Peter, and he knows Peter. He knows who Peter is, and he knows who Peter will be. But the beauty of this passage is that John, or that Jesus gives Peter a new identity. Isn't that the beauty for all of us when we come to Christ? That the God who sees us, when we see him, that he gives us a new identity? That we are therefore, when we are in Christ, we are a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Peter comes to Jesus and Jesus says, gives him a new identity. He says, Peter, you are now going to be known as the rock. Praise God that in Christ we are given a new identity. Praise God that God, the God who sees, grants sight to those who come and see him. Let's move on to the second paragraph, starting in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. I love the wording that the author John uses here. It says that Jesus found Philip. As we're going through this text, I can't help but think about the great hymn, Amazing Grace. Think about it. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Jesus found Philip. I was blind, but now I see. Jesus finds Philip and he calls him. He says, follow me. Now, right off the bat, we see Philip following the same pattern as Andrew and John. Philip has an encounter with Jesus, and what does Philip do? He immediately finds someone else and proclaims Christ. What I love about John's gospel is the richness we are given. This is now going to be the third proclamation we've seen, and each one is unique while also 100% true. In fact, in this whole chapter, there's almost 20 different titles for who Jesus is. All of these different metaphors that he's the light, he's the word. We see here that Philip says, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. 
In the Gospels, when we see someone talk about the law and the prophets, they are referring to the scriptures, to the Old Testament that they had. Philip is saying, we have found the fulfillment of the scriptures. The one who was promised in the law, the one whom the prophets foretold, he's here. What I love is that Philip even goes on to specifically identify him. This is a real person. It's a person we can see with our own eyes. We can bear witness to him. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, just a quick aside here. When When Philip says the son of Joseph, Philip is not saying that the virgin birth didn't happen. He's not going against that. It may be that Philip just doesn't know that part yet. My, just my impression, my guess is that Jesus wasn't going around and after the first thing saying, hi, I'm Jesus, follow me. By the way, my mother was a virgin when she had me. I'm not, I don't think that that really was part of it. Now, was that important? Yes, because it was a fulfillment of the prophecies. But Philip has already said that he is the fulfillment. He knows that Jesus fulfilled what the prophecies said. But Jesus was known as the son of Joseph. Because Joseph was his adopted father. So this isn't a matter where where Philip is doubting part of Scripture. He's just identifying Christ. Jesus was known as Jesus bar Joseph, son of Joseph. So it's not a matter of discounting that. It's just a matter of identifying him. But here's what's great about this account. So far, it seemed like everyone was just so quick and ready to, to receive the revelation. Man, I would love if in my evangelism, that's how it worked. Like, I just go up to someone and say, behold the Lamb of God, boom, they're saved. Could that happen? Absolutely. It's not, after all, I'm not the one that's saving people, it's Christ. If Christ calls someone and and that's how he does it, absolutely that can happen. But what I love here is that for the first time, we're going to see someone who doubts him. Philip says something to Nathaniel, and Nathaniel's not really sure. Look what Nathaniel says. Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, you've got to appreciate how blunt Nathaniel is. To us, this can seem like a strange question. Like if I asked all a number of you, if we were doing a trivia and I said, name five Jewish places, most of you would probably include Nazareth. But that's only because we've had the New Testament and Nazareth is talked about a lot because of Jesus. But before the New Testament, Nazareth is never mentioned. So, like, when Nathaniel, who truly has a high view of the Messiah that we're going to see soon in Nathaniel's proclamation, he hears Philip say, the promise is here, and then Philip says, and he's from Nazareth? It doesn't make sense to Nathaniel. Can anything good come from that place? That's not where I would expect. But what does Philip do to respond to Nathaniel's doubt? Does Philip just pull out all of these apologetics? Does Philip say, all right, no, I'm going to explain this to you. You're wrong. Let's start arguing about this. No. Philip does the best thing he could possibly do. He said, Philip says to him, come and see. He says almost the same words that Jesus said in the previous uh, paragraph. Come and see. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that apologetics are bad. I'm not saying that it's, it's wrong to stand up for our faith. You know, uh, Peter tells us to be ready to give an answer to those who ask us for the hope that we have. So we should be able to be ready. But what we really are supposed to be doing in those things is pointing to Jesus. 
We're not trying to win an argument. We're trying to do what Philip is doing. Come and see. When people express doubt, what we need to do is point to Jesus. You, you're not sure? Come and see him. Come and see the God who sees, who grants sight to the blind. And, then we, and so Nathaniel comes and we again see the God who sees. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus sees Nathanael and he makes his, his second statement regarding someone's identity. Again, I love the bluntness of Nathanael. There's no false modesty. There's no deceit. Jesus says, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael's response is, How do you know me? <laughs> like, Jesus just said a great thing about him, and he's like, How'd you know that? No, I don't think that, that, that Nathanael's being proud here, but, but he's asking, How do you know me? He's still showing some doubt. Now, what, what Jesus is saying in this behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit, this is an allusion back to Jacob. Jacob in the Old Testament was later named Israel. But what do we know about Jacob? Jacob was deceitful. Jacob was the deceiver so often that he would go around, that he got the blessing from his father by deceiving. And Jesus looks here at, at Nathanael and says, Nathanael, a better Israelite, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Why is Jesus saying that about him? What is it about Nathanael that makes him better in this way? Because Nathanael is ready to receive his king. Nathaniel is ready to receive Jesus. He's a true Israelite. Nathaniel asks him, how do you know me? And Jesus responds, because Jesus knows exactly. When, when Nathaniel expresses doubt, he expresses it to God, and the God who sees knows exactly what to say. Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, we don't have any more information of, about exactly what, what Jesus is talking about right here. Um, many commentaries think that Nathaniel had had some special thing happen under the fig tree. Maybe that he had come before God and was crying out to God in a way that was private between Nathaniel and God. And so when Jesus refers to that, Nathaniel knows that only God could have known that. It could be that Nathaniel was just literally sitting by himself under a fig tree, and for Jesus to know that, it's miraculous. But whatever Jesus is demonstrating, it's enough for Nathaniel to know who Jesus is. That as Nathaniel encounters Jesus, he knows, and so he makes the fourth proclamation. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Again, we continue the pattern that when someone truly sees Jesus, they cannot help but proclaim who he is. In this fourth proclamation, Nathaniel refers to Jesus in three different capacities. First, he calls him rabbi. He calls him teacher. Second, he calls him the son of God. He is talking about Christ's deity. But third, he calls him the king of Israel, that he is the authority. Now, don't miss the significance of what Nathanael is saying when he calls him the king of Israel. What did Jesus just say about Nathanael? Behold, an Israelite. 
And then the very next phrase, when Nathaniel responds, he says, you are the king of Israel. Nathaniel is saying, you are my king. And then Jesus gives a promise to Nathanael. In verse 50, Jesus answered him and says, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He gives a promise to Nathanael, first just to Nathanael. He says, you will see greater things than these. Nathaniel, you've seen me demonstrate that I'm the God who sees. You're going to see greater things. You're going to see that I'm not only the God who sees, I'm the God who saves. I'm the God who gives sight to the blind. I'm the God who sacrifices for the lost. But then Jesus continues and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, we've already seen Jesus make an allusion to Jacob earlier. Here's his second allusion. Because in Genesis 28, Jacob is, has just deceived his father, and he's running away because his brother wants to kill him, and he doesn't know what's going to happen. He thinks, based off of the, bless, the blessing from his father, he should get the blessing, but he doesn't know. And he falls asleep in the middle of nowhere. He has a rock for his pillow, and he has a vision. He has this dream where he sees heaven opened and a ladder between heaven and earth and angels ascending and descending. And when Jacob wakes up, he is so encouraged because he knows the blessing of God will continue, that heaven's blessings will still be poured out. And he names the place Bethel, which means the house of God. Now, I think that this imagery is so beautiful here that Jesus says, you are a better Jacob. You are a true Israelite with no deceit. And then he says, and I will give you a better promise. Because not only will you still see the blessing, but the blessing is so much greater. Because in Genesis 28, what was, what connected heaven and earth? A ladder. But in our passage, what connects heaven and earth? The Son of Man. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of of man. Jesus is the connection between heaven and earth. Jesus is the one through whom the blessings of heaven are poured out on earth. If we want to see God, if we want that relationship to be made whole, the relationship that was ripped apart in the garden because of our sin, if we want that to be restored, then it is only through Jesus who bridges that gap. The promise is that we will see, that Nathaniel will see. But I want to point out something here specifically for us. Because there's a promise here, not just to Nathaniel, but to us. If you look at verse 51, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
you will see. Now, in English, we have a limitation here. And, and some of your Bibles might have a footnote about this. But the limitation is that the singular you and the plural you are the same word. And you really have to just rely on context to know which one it's, is which. But in Greek, they're not the same. They're different words. The you here in verse 51 is not singular. It's plural. The promise that we will see greater things is not just to Nathaniel. It's a promise to the disciples. It's a promise to all the disciples. Truly, truly, you, you all will see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. If we would be truly saved, then we must look on the Son of Man. The Son of Man who later in John we will see will be lifted up. Like Moses lifted the serpent in the desert so that everyone who looked on the serpent was, was saved. In the same way, Jesus, the Son of Man, will be lifted up so that those who look on him will be saved. The Son of Man who is the bread of life. The Son of Man who comes in judgment. Jesus is the way the blessings of heaven will be poured out. If we would truly be his disciples, we must come and see the Son of Man. The trial for us, though, is as we're looking at this and we look and say, well, but look at these disciples. It's easy for them to see. Jesus is literally right in front of them. They can open, literally open their eyes and see him. What do we do? How do we see him? Jesus isn't unaware of our struggle. Um, a, a while back at Easter, uh, Billy preached about this, about Thomas. And Thomas doubts. He's not sure that Jesus has really come back to life, that Jesus is risen until he sees him, until he touches him. And what does Jesus say to him? Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet, you, and yet believed. It's true we do not have the same benefit of seeing Jesus the same way the disciples in the Gospel of John did, but we can still come and see Christ. Remember the last verse in our passage is a promise to his disciples. You will see truly, truly. It's a promise. So how do we see Christ today? How can we come to the God who sees so that he can grant sight to those of us who are blind? The first way we can see him is through his word. That theme in John of why it's written, he tells us it's his word. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. These things reveal Christ. His word reveals himself. The second thing, though, is the Holy Spirit. In John 15, 26, Jesus tells us that when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. We can see Jesus because of the Holy Spirit. But the third way that Jesus demonstrates, reveals himself, is the one in which we have a responsibility. Because he also reveals himself through his people. 
In John 15, 27, it says, You also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. The followers of Christ bear witness to who Jesus is. They reveal him. Those first followers went and they built the church. The church is the body of Christ. If we want the world to see Jesus, then we must imitate, we must reflect him. We must represent him. So what do we do now? What do we do with this passage? The first thing is we must seek to know Jesus. For some of you who are here today, that might be something brand new. You've never seen Jesus. You've never met Jesus. You don't know him yet. Friend, come and see. Come and see the Son of Man who paid for your sins, who died and was risen, who is alive now. Come and see. For many of us, though, it's a continuation of a relationship. But that relationship needs to be continually growing. Again, come and see. Come and see Jesus. Grow in your understanding, in your knowledge, in the wisdom of the mystery which is Christ in you. Come and see Christ. Come and know him more. But we also must seek to make him known. Point people to Jesus with our mouth. Let us tell others, this is who Jesus is. Come and see. Come and see him. Now the last thing that I want to say as the worship team comes up, though, is just a comfort. Because for some of us right now, we might be just in a dark place where it's just really hard to see. We might be in a season where it's just hard to see Christ. But we have a promise we will see. Keep coming. Keep looking. Keep coming and seeing. Keep striving for that. Because we know that there is a promise where there is one day where we are coming where we will see him face to face. Where the fulfillment of the promise will finally be made complete. But even now, even in the times where it is difficult, come see him. See him in his word. See him through the Holy Spirit. See him in the body. The God who sees grants sight to those who come and see him.